The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Hey, good morning. Hey, it's great to be with y'all. I I love your pastor, Jimmy. I just got to say out of the gate, he's one of my favorite people, and it's not just because he grows the most amazing beard. I mean, seriously, that guy could shave in about an hour. He would have like the fullest, thickest mountain man beard. I'm jealous, I'll be honest. And then that, that guy is like the greatest hunter of all time. So you guys not only have an amazing man of God serving uh, this congregation, uh, he's also just become a very dear uh, friend of mine as he shared in there. We've known each other for a number of different years. Uh, We get together on a regular basis uh, to share about what's going on in our lives, to pray for each other. Uh, He's someone who I turn to uh, as a husband and as a father for ongoing advice in my life. And I've heard so many different stories of the way that God's working in and through this community. And so uh, genuinely, it's, it's a joy to get to be here uh, and worship with y'all uh, this morning. Uh, a little bit about me. Uh, my wife and I were part of this decentralized uh, network of uh, disciple-making missionaries in Kansas City called the Kansas City Underground. And so uh, our heartbeat is we want to see all of Kansas City saturated uh, with the beauty, justice, and good news of Jesus. And the way that we see that come to life is by seeing a disciple-making missionary uh, on every uh, street and in every networking, uh, living out the ways of Jesus and bringing his ways to life and multiplying that in the lives of others. And so both my wife and I serve in in some intentional kind of uh, capacities within our community, uh, but we also have other vocations. So so between my wife and I, we work four different roles just to try to kind of make ends meet. And then we got two young boys, Bo and Wes, and I got a picture of our family here uh, on the screen. So... um, Yeah, my family's much cuter than I am. I apologize. I should have photoshopped myself out of there. It would have been a whole lot better on you. Um, So on the right there, that's my oldest, Bo. He's uh, six years old. He's a kindergarten student. And then uh, there in the middle is my younger son, uh, Weston. He's two years old. And so uh, this morning, I'm talking about transformation of the table, and I just got to come out of the gate and say, we do an awful job in our family about eating at a table. Uh, any of you have young kids, maybe you can relate to this. In our family with, with young children, like we don't often get to all sit collectively at the table. What ends up happening is, is one of us uh, is up and down with our younger one uh, because he's throwing food, right? He like knocks something off of the table. He's trying to like take his food and feed it to the dog. We're trying to like distract and read direct there. Our older one is complaining that his food is too hot or that it's not hot enough. And sometimes it can be like on the same plate of food, right? That he's complaining at the same time. So I'm like blowing on one part of his plate while trying to microwave the other part. Like this is what happens in our home. So my wife and I are up and down. We're, we're jumping around. A, a lot of times, because our, our lives are busy, we spend a lot of time in drive throughs just to be honest. Like I'm not the greatest parent. We give a lot of our money to Chick-fil-A and McDonald's. Uh, we, go, we go through the drive through And this is always a lot more chaos than I think it's gonna be. Every time I get in that line, if we go to McDonald's, McDonald's, I'm sorry if you work at McDonald's, like they just do not have great uh, systems to make sure that we get our food properly. I, I inevitably get out and I start to hand our food to our oldest son, Bo, because he wants to eat his food right away. He's always hungry. So I hand it to him. Actually, it's not that he wants his food right away. He wants the toy out of the Happy Meal. That's what's really going on. He'll say, I'm so hungry. Just give me the whole Happy Meal, right? He just wants the toy. Um, but I'll hand it to him and he'll be like, this has a, a cheeseburger in it. I wanted, you know, chicken nuggets. And then I stop. I got to go back inside while he's screaming in the car. Um, or if we go through uh, Chick-fil-A, he, he wants to immediately start eating his nuggets and he loves Chick-fil-A sauce. And I try to tell him, you don't open the Chick-fil-A sauce in the car. He doesn't understand that. And then we got sauce all over the place. It's like in Weston's hair. And I'm like, well, now I'm going to have to give him a bath. You know, when we get home, maybe we shouldn't have done the drive-through. And sometimes we get real crazy. I, 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 it's honestly like, 
like a form of bravery. We will go to a restaurant and we will sit down at a table to eat. And I don't know why I ever think this is a great idea because as soon as this happens, we'll sit down at the table and, you know, one of our kids, like they'll bring out the, the rolls, you know, and the bread to put at the middle. They think they're being nice. They're just giving ammunition to my children because they'll start throwing it back and forth. It's like a food fight starts to break out. And I'm like embarrassed. I'm like, please stop doing that. And then when the food comes to get delivered to our table, inevitably, that's when our youngest decides he's got to have a dirty diaper. It's like, come on, I'm ready to eat. And now I gotta, we got to deal with this, right? And there's like smells that come out at that point at the table that I'm like, well, I ain't even hungry anymore after what we just witnessed. Uh, I've, I'll be honest, I've, I've run uh, half marathons before and those are less exhausting than trying to eat with my family. Just being real here, right? And maybe if you've got younger kids, you can relate to everything that I just described here as well. If you've got older kids, you guys have a whole different experience that you navigate through, right? It's, it's sports practices and extracurriculars. You're, it's like mom and dad Uber all over the place, shuffling them around. And those things are never kind of a corresponding schedule. So it's like you get one to practice and, and they're missing meal, but then you know the other one has to be like shuttled out the door to something else. And then there's just for, for all of us, just the busyness of life right? We've got jobs that we go to and from, and inevitably we come home and we've got meetings that run late and then we walk in the door and we've got children that need help with their homework or they want to ride to a friend's house. And then in the midst of all of that, we're trying to fix dinner. We're also trying to like just, just mentally try to like decompress and like resume our lives as hum humans, like in our household after a day of just like grinding things out. And I would guess that in this room that all of us at different levels have challenges when I talk about just being present at a table, like phones put away, no TV in the background going, just kind of making noise for us to be fully present at a table. And so I want to start kind of with that point to recognize that we're all probably operating at even playing field, that this is an area that we all probably have room to grow in. But my question is, what if time at the table could be one of the most transformative experiences that Jesus wants to cultivate in us? And the reason I ask that is because this is something that's been rattling around uh, inside of me recently is what if time at the table could be one of the most transformative experiences that Jesus wants us to cultivate? Uh, we're going to spend some time this morning in Luke uh, chapter 19. There's a, a famous verse that many of us, if we've been around in, in church worlds before, we probably might have heard uh, this verse. It's kind of a, a succinct summary of Jesus' mission. He says this. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. And recently, as I was marinating on this verse specifically, I kind of started to notice and have this increasing awareness of the context that Jesus says this passage in. The Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. The story that this is kind of anchored in, it begins in Luke chapter 19 and verse 1. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to just kind of do some work journeying through this together. It says this. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to open it up. I've got the words that will be on the screen accompanying me. It says this. Jesus entered Jericho, and he made his way through the town. There's a man there named Zacchaeus. Uh, some of you, if you grew up in church, you knew him as like the wee little man, right? Um, he was the chief tax collector in the region, and he'd become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd, so he ran ahead. He climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked at Zacchaeus, and he called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down 
and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord, standing before Jesus. He says, I'll give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. So uh, let's just kind of uh, journey through this real fast, and and I'm going to make a couple quick highlights. So the first thing that we read here in verse 1 is that Jesus enters a town called Jericho. Now, if if you're familiar at all with the Bible, this uh, terminology, Jericho, it might seem familiar. This was a historical place in the Old Testament when the people of God came into the promised land, that this was one of the first obstacles that they had to overcome. And we saw in that story that when the the Israelites entered the land, that what happened is God told them to march all around the walls and eventually the walls came tumbling down, right? Uh, When I was growing up, when I heard the word Jericho, I'll be honest, uh, I I grew up a hillbilly and I understood wrestling to be real. And so I thought of a wrestler named Chris Jericho. Anybody here remember Chris Jericho? There's like four of us that are all hillbillies together. Thank the Lord, right? Yeah. And so I grew up, I thought wrestling was real. I thought it was the most real thing. So in, in my mind, I was like, oh, that's crazy. There's a a story about a, a town in the Bible that was named after this wrestler. Uh, that's just, yeah, uh, I had to go to seminary for that to get worked out of me. Uh, but, but Jesus enters this town, Jericho, that had this historical reputation as being this place that God had kind of used as like a foothold for their faith when they moved into the promised land. But what had happened is that in the thousands of years that had passed from that point to when in Jesus' day, uh, something significant had transpired. Uh, there was this king, his name was Herod the Great. Uh, if you're familiar uh, with that terminal or the name Herod, it's probably because in Matthew chapter two, he shows up in the Christmas story. Uh, Matthew chapter two, there we read that this uh, same ruler, Herod the Great, was responsible for killing all of the boys, uh, the male children, two years old and younger, because he had this fear when the wise, man sh- the wise men showed up that Jesus, this promised spoken king, was gonna usurp, usurp his, his power and authority. And so Herod the Great had murdered all of these children uh, in Bethlehem. That's in Matthew chapter 2. Well, that same Herod, um, and he's an, he's an awful person, just, just to be honest. I don't like to like, stand up and, and say like, negative, disparaging things about people. I want to be like a positive person. Can't be positive about Herod. This guy's evil. He's evil. Uh, he murdered one of his wives. Uh, he killed several of his children, one of which uh, he drowned in a pool there in the town of Jericho. Any relative who he thought was infringing upon his authority, he had him put to death. So this is, this is like an evil, evil ruler that he had taken the town of Jericho and he'd kind of built that up to be his own kind of private city. And so he'd installed in it all these aqueducts and fountains and pools to make it really beautiful. Uh, he'd installed in it in many ways like an arts district. It had theaters and, and different forms of entertainment. He'd also heavily fortified it uh, so that that way, if he felt like his power was infringed upon, he could retreat to Jericho. This was his place of, of safety, but also for relaxation, right? And so uh, Herod, who's this really evil ruler, also is... is kind of occupying or ruling under the authority of Rome, which is this oppressive force. So the people who live in Israel, they look at Herod as as really not being their king. They don't recognize him. They, They fear him for sure, but they don't respect him. And so Jesus walks into Jericho, which is really like the center of this place that represents almost from a city standpoint, an antithesis of the kingdom of God. Right, So he walks into this city, this place that has a poor reputation that is tied historically to this 
a really evil puppet ruler, and he walks in there and further shows how the kingdom of God turns everything on its head. He encounters a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. Continuing on here, it says there's a man named Zacchaeus. He's the chief tax collector in the region, and he'd become very rich. Now, again, keep in mind, Jericho, this is this kind of central city for Herod the Great to kind of like rule over. And so the way that he kind of collected funds, Herod did, was through taxation. And, the, and I would say all of us in this room, we can all agree, no one in here gets really excited about taxes, right? Woo, like more money coming out of my paycheck. But in this situation, like the world that Jesus lived in, what they had going on was an oppressive tax rate, unlike anything that any of us in here uh, have experienced. Some of those tax rates could go up to 90%. Significant, right? And where that 90% flowed, some of that stayed with Herod and those like local rulers who lorded and ruled their authority over with fear and trepidation over the citizens. And then a significant of that went to Rome, to Caesar, this oppressive force that was in a distant place that ruled heavily over them. And the way that these taxes were collected is that they would mobilize people from within these cities to go out and be the ones responsible for collecting those taxes. And the way that they would actually make money, these tax collectors, wasn't they didn't get a commission off of how much they collected. They actually would tax additionally on to whatever the tax rate was. They would add extra to that that they would keep for themselves. So if the tax rate that they were told to go out and collect was 75%, you go out and take 75% of what they sell, what they earn, take 75%. These tax collectors would maybe add another 10% to that. And they would go and take 85%. They'd keep 10 for them. And then the other 75 would funnel into Herod and into Rome. And they would do this to their own people who they lived around. And they did it under the authority of the banner of the, the oppressive government and regime. And so you can imagine if you live in that place, that when you see a tax collector coming, like you want to run the opposite direction, right? That these are people uh, who you, you fear because they could throw you in jail if you didn't do what they told you to do. Uh, or worse, they could bring the Roman army out to oppress your family, to take away your possessions, to make sure that they were able to extort the right amount that they felt was fair, right? And so you operated with fear, but you also tried to avoid them. And what we learn about Zacchaeus is honestly, he's, he's probably about the worst of the worst because we're told that he's a chief tax collector and become very rich. And that tells us two things. Number one, that means that he's risen through the ranks so that he's overseeing a group of people who are doing these kind of awful things to the citizens of this community that he's got a certain level of influence and power and he's very rich, which means that he's been incredibly successful at trampling down on the lives of people of taking. And this is not like a, a, when, they're, when they're taxing people, what you're talking about is the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, the most oppressed, the ones who have the least amount of influence to do anything. He's taken advantage of them and he's lined his pockets at their expense. And when I first began to understand the, the way that taxes were collected, it honestly made me a little bit more uncomfortable thinking about the fact that Jesus chose one of these types of people to be one of his closest disciples. The author, Matthew, uh, who's called Levi at one point, is a tax collector. And of the 12 people that Jesus invites into his closest circle, we're told that one of them was a tax collector. And in this story, we get another glimpse of the way that Jesus sees people not for what they do, but who they could be when God gets hold of them. Then we got this guy, Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, very rich. And in my opinion, he's, he's one of the most vile types of people. And when Jesus enters the story, check out what happens. 
that it says Jesus came by, he looks up at Zacchaeus in the tree and he calls him by name, Zacchaeus. Now, if I was writing this story, what I would love to have happen next is like an utter evisceration, like a total public humiliation that Jesus takes this moment, Jesus who stands up for the, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the oppressed, that Jesus would take this moment, he looks up there and he sees the most vile of vile people and he says, oh, I'm gonna let him have it. Like if I was writing this story, if I was Jesus, I would use this as an opportunity to bring him low to embarrass him, to shame him. But watch what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, quick, come down. I need to be a guest in your home. Like this is, this, when you read it through that lens, this is a shocking way for Jesus to navigate through life. And then watch what happens right after this. So Zacchaeus invites him into the home and the people are displeased naturally. Honestly, like I, I kind of get where they're coming from. They're going, he's gone to eat with this notorious sinner, he's gone to eat with one of the worst possible people that I could possibly imagine. You can imagine the crowd probably having this kind of back and forth conversation where they're going, wait, 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 wait. Jesus says he's the son of God. And he's going to eat with that guy? And you can imagine maybe some people in the crowd, uh, maybe they're uh, kinder, softer, more apologetic. They go, hey, maybe Jesus just doesn't know who he is. Maybe that's what it is. You know, Jesus isn't from Jericho, right? We know he's from, you know, Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. Maybe he's not from here. He just doesn't know who he's going to dinner with. And then other people would have said, no, 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 no. He knew him by name. He calls him Zacchaeus as soon as he walks on the scene. Jesus has to know who he's eating with. This isn't an accident. And we actually know it's not an accident. But Jesus did know Zacchaeus and Jesus knew who he was eaten with, but Jesus also knew something that the crowd didn't know and that sometimes I failed to miss, which is that sometimes God's greatest work of transformation happens at the table. That Jesus knew exactly who he was eaten with and he knew the opportunity that he was presented with. Uh, here, here's why, check this out. For Zacchaeus, to invite Jesus into his home, it requires him to do a couple different things. The first is that it requires him to stop everything. Like, think about this. Zacchaeus, he's an important guy. He's busy going around crushing the masses, right? Sucking the souls out of people. He's like a human dementor, right? The, the six of us who watch Harry Potter know what that reference is to. So, so he's, he's like stopping his plans, everything that's going on. He's telling his wife, hey, cancel the social club that's coming over. He's telling his kids, hey, I'm sorry you've got Little League Baseball tonight, but you ain't going to your game. We've got Jesus coming to our house. He stops everything. Uh, number two, he has to serve. Think about this. Zacchaeus has to serve. Zacchaeus, who's risen to be in, in this high rank of being a tax collector, whose whole life existence has been about taking is now putting himself in a posture of serving. That when Jesus enters his home culturally, his responsibility would to make sure that Jesus and his disciples had their feet washed. We're treated with hospitality. We're welcomed around the table. We've been asked, hey, what do you want? What do you need? How can I help you, right? Can I take your coat? Can you take my seat, right? It's putting him in a posture of serving. Additionally, it's requiring sacrifice, right? Jesus didn't say, hey, let's go, to, uh, let's go out to eat together. We'll split the checkup. He says, no, I'm going to your house, which means that this guy who spent his life accumulating wealth now has to turn that wealth into blessing Jesus. 
to provide the meal, to provide the drink, to provide. And this, by the way, this is when Jesus says, I'm going to your house. Like he rolls deep. He's got 12 disciples at least that are rolling with him in there, right? So this is not a small meal that he's providing for. This is significant. And he's having to take his resources, his ill-gotten gain and use that to bless God, to bless Jesus in this moment. It's requiring sacrifice. And then lastly, and, and this is really interesting, it requires them to sit at equal level. Now, here's why this is really important. One of the things that we know about Zacchaeus is he's what? Short. That he's got his whole life, he's known as being the short guy, and yet he's living as though he's superior to everyone else. Like he lives over them, taking from them. And so he's living this duality at the same time that he's both smaller physically, but he's greater financially with power and authority. But when Jesus brings him to the table, he doesn't bring him as one or the other. He brings him at equal eye level. When you're seated at a table, you're seated at eye level. It doesn't matter how short physically he is, right? Like all of those physical things go away when you're seated at a table and all of those financial things, this ability of him lording over gets brought low. This is the way that Jesus operates is he wants to bring us fully into our cultivated God-given identity as sons, daughters, of God, that he looks at us at eye level. It's not about him shrinking us and trying to make us feel small, but he's also trying to keep us from elevating our egos. That it's about equality, like bringing us down and seeing that every single one of us is man, woman, child, like we all exist equally in the eyes of God. That he wants to put us in proper position. And so I think that Jesus understands in this moment when he invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house, that there's going to be this transformative thing that happens. One of the incredible things, and I never noticed this before, the most words that Jesus says in this entire narrative happens after Zacchaeus's transformation. It's not about exhortation. It's about eating. Jesus doesn't show up and give a sermon. And he absolutely does a lot of times show up and give sermons. But in this situation... It's not about the words that he's saying. It's about inviting Zacchaeus to see the, authentic, the authenticity of his life around the table and check out the transformation. I mean, I mean this is, I've seen a lot of people step into faith in Jesus. And I, to this day, I've never seen a transformation as bold as this. Check this out. It says, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I'll give half my wealth to the poor. Most, most of the time I'm trying to convince people to give 10%. And he's going, I'm going to give half to the Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, and we know that that ain't an if, it's a definitely it happened, right? I'm going to give them back four times as much. Now you do the math on that real fast. You're realizing that Zacchaeus is going to be moving from the top 1% to the bottom 1% real fast. That means basically all he's got is going to be gone. If half of it's going to the poor and he's got to make up fourfold how much he's robbed and cheated and taken advantage of people, that's going to have a significant impact. I ain't never seen a transformation like this. And then you've got someone who's got influence and authority over the other tax collectors. You can imagine the way that that ripple effect is going to happen. And that's when Jesus speaks. That's when Jesus, aside from Jesus inviting himself to Zacchaeus's home, this is the first time that we see Jesus speak in this story. And he says this, salvation's come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save those who are lost. And I think that Jesus here is giving us a model of what it can look like around the table to see transformation happen. 
I think that Jesus here uh, in this story uh, is showing us a, a different kind of way than what we always assume how Jesus works. That when we read through all the different stories of Jesus' life, that we see times in which he shows up and he speaks to a crowd, that he proclaims and he preaches. And other times we see him show up in these places in which there's uh, severe needs that need to be met. And he brings power and authority, whether it's healing or actually at times bringing people who are dead back to life, right? There are situations like that. But then there's also situations that are incredibly ordinary, like sitting around a table. And I think sometimes, and this is, I'm certainly guilty of this. Sometimes I think the way that I'm meant to make a difference in the world is with some of those bigger things. And I miss out on some of those smaller, ordinary things. And I think that Jesus is trying to say, it's both. It's all of those things. The way that we see life transformation, yeah, sometimes it's through public proclamation. Sometimes it's through power and authority. And sometimes it's as simple as sitting around a table with someone who looks like that they are as far from the kingdom of God as possible. Inviting them into your life sharing a table, sharing a meal, and seeing how God might show up. Uh, that last verse, it says that Jesus came to seek and to save, right? And that, that's still true, that Jesus is the one who does the saving, not us, right? But I think that Jesus knows that when we walk into some of these ways, that it gives him an opportunity to seek and to save in a new kind of way. And we see that this is not, and, and just so you're not thinking, oh, well, this is like a one-off story, Josh. This is actually the way that Jesus lives in such a way that it cultivates a reputation that this is how he lived. Check this out in Luke chapter seven. This is the reputation that Jesus says is my reputation. He says, the son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. You say he's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Wisdom is shown right by the lives of those who follow it. What Jesus does, he does this so frequently that that's how people know who he is. They go, oh, Jesus, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Now that's not who he was. We know that that's not who he was, but he was so commonly eating and drinking with people that this was the assumption that sometimes people made about him. And they definitely associated him with being a friend of tax collectors, the most vile of people. He was the one who they associated friendship with. I think this is where Paul in the shadow of kind of this kind of context of Jesus writes these words in, in Romans 12, 13. He says, always be eager to practice hospitality. That I think that what Paul, when he's writing to the church in Rome, what he's doing is he's trying to invite all of us into the same pattern of Jesus. That word hospitality literally is translated as love of a stranger. And I think that the way that we live this out is that when each of us makes a conscious choice, say, hey, I'm gonna stop everything for the sake of others. I'm gonna stop everything. I'm gonna live out practicing serving. I'm gonna invite someone into my home. And that serving might look like, uh, this is how it plays out in our family. Part of the, the first way that we serve someone is what we do before they walk in the doors, right? That we go around, we clean up our house. We ask them in advance, hey, what do you eat? What do you not eat, right? We wanna make sure that we're serving them a meal that they're gonna like. And then when they walk in the home, taking our coats, trying to chase around our, our children in the midst of a meal so that that way they're not feeling that kind of unburdened uh, responsibility. Uh, we sacrifice for people when we invite them into our table right? When we provide that experience for them. And when we sit around the table, it creates opportunities for us to have conversation with people who don't look like us, don't think like us, maybe don't grow up in the same areas that we grew up in, perhaps vote differently than we vote. There's something powerful that happens as we sit at the table. And here's what I believe. I believe that everything that Jesus does in us 
He wants to do through us for the sake of others. Let me say that again. That every, I believe that everything that Jesus does in us, which is the starting point, it's in us. He wants to do through us for the sake of others. That in this story, I believe that we're meant to do two things. That first and foremost, we're meant to be in the position of Zacchaeus. We're meant to be as, as followers of Jesus, people who stop everything for Jesus, who serve at the feet of Jesus, who sacrifice for Jesus, and understand that because of his death and resurrection, that he elevates us to be able to sit at the table with him. That we're meant first and foremost to experience this through the lens of Zacchaeus but we're also meant to multiply this over. Uh, Jesus says this in John 20, 21. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Uh, in 1 John, he actually says that uh, uh, if those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus should live as Jesus lived, which means that what we see captured in this story, that reputation that Jesus cultivated is meant to be true for us as well. Uh, earlier uh, this week, I was talking to my dad. We got Thanksgiving coming up, and we were talking about Thanksgiving. And my dad reminded me of something that happened a couple Thanksgivings ago that, uh, honestly, I'd kind of forgotten about. Uh, the backstory was this. Um, a couple years ago, uh, me and a couple guys that I was intentionally uh, discipling into the ways of Jesus, we felt like that God had kind of pressed upon us this call to go and serve a community that was living out uh, in tents and in, in encampment, uh, downtown Kansas City, kind of overlooking uh, part of the city there. And so on this one specific evening, uh, we went to Domino's, we bought a whole bunch of pizzas, we bought a uh, bunch of cases of bottled water, and we went out there. Uh, we didn't know any of the people who lived there, any of the residents, we just said, hey, we're just gonna go out to this community where people who are um, displaced, who are living in tents, and we're just gonna provide a meal. And so we showed up, we brought some uh, pizzas and some bottled waters, and we just sat there on that first night, eating with them, drinking with them, and learning their stories. And then we started doing that again and again and again, that every single week we'd make it a priority that we're gonna go out there and we're just gonna be present. And we started to hear stories of addiction and stories of abuse. We heard stories of, of people who'd lost everything because of significant uh, painful experiences, foreclosures on homes, medical crises. We also heard stories of, of people who'd experienced some heavy trauma, some overseas uh, on behalf of our country's veterans, I started to hear all these different stories. And it started to change the way that I started to see people who stand on a corner. I started to change the way that I started to think about people who were uh, unhoused and displaced. And so as Thanksgiving got closer and closer, uh, my wife Sarah and I, we were talking and we we're like, man, it just doesn't feel right for us uh, on this cold November day to be sitting around with our extended family while uh, so many of these people we've gotten to know are, are living here in this displaced community. And so we invited them over to our house with our extended family. We borrowed uh, some tables and chairs from different neighbors uh, and friends that we had, and we filled up our, our living room. And on that Thanksgiving day, we sat around uh, inside. We watched the cowboys and lions play. We ate too much pumpkin pie. And we sat there as equals, as fellow humans who had all different life experiences that kind of led us to this place. And there was something powerful that happened at that table because it didn't just, it wasn't just about the benefit of them. What happened is it was changing to me. It was changing to our, 
family. And that Thanksgiving has had ripple effects to the point that uh, earlier this week, I had the opportunity to take my uh, son, Bo, went to the uh, college basketball experience downtown. And we, we spent the whole day there. It was a whole lot of fun. He was enjoying it. And at the end, we get, uh, we're, we're walking out and they've got a vending machine. I'll be honest, I hate vending machines. Uh, everything they sell in there is like nutritional garbage and it's also completely overpriced. So it's like $4 for like a little bag of Cheetos. And I'm like, that's 25 cents a price shopper. And he's like, I have to have it, I have to have it, right? And so I, 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 like, I'll be honest, sometimes in these moments I hold my ground. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like we're not spending $4 on overpriced garbage. Like we've got food at home. We're not gonna do that. But he just kept begging, I, I, I have my snack out of the vending machine. So I was like, okay, fine. So I swiped my credit card and he gets his, his snack and we're walking back to the car. And as we're walking, and, and maybe if you have young children, they do this, you're, like, you're walking. It was cold outside and I was like, I'm ready to get to the car, start it, like warm up. We're walking back to the car and he's like lagging behind. A lot of times he's lagging behind because he's like picking up rocks or he's like, look, I found a, a, you know trash and this is special. It's like, that's an old battery, throw that away, put that down. And so he's like lagging behind me and I'm going, come on, come on, come on, come on. He says, no, no, daddy, stop, come back here, come back here. And I was like, no, 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 Bo, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. He says, no, 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 stop, come back here. So I stop and I turn around and I see like kind of right around the corner is this guy who's kind of huddled up. He's got a, just like a sleeping bag that he's kind of wrapped around him. And he's got a trash bag sitting down at his feet that has everything that he owns. And he's standing there kind of huddled together on this freezing cold day. And Bo says, come here, come here, come here, come here. And so I come walking up and Bo runs up to this man. And the man leans over and Bo takes his snack that two minutes before, like the whole world revolved around him having it. And he goes, here you go. And this snack that he had to have, he gives to this man who's huddled in the corner with nothing on him but a sleeping bag. And it was like Jesus was tapping me on the shoulder saying, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when you stop everything. When you serve others around you, when you sacrifice, to the point of maybe it's everything that you got and it moves you onto eye level, even the eye level of six-year-old kid. And so here's what I believe, that in the midst of the chaos that happens around our family's table, that Christ has still been cultivated, that our, our children in the midst of the craziness of exhaustion, that these little bits and pieces of the kingdom of God they've picked up on. And I believe that this is the power, this is the transformation that can come at the table. And I just wonder what transformation might Jesus wanna do in us first and foremost? What transformation might he wanna do through us inside of our families, inside of our neighborhoods, inside of our broader communities? When we stop everything, when we look for opportunities to serve, when we sacrifice, so they have the opportunity to sit as equals and see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. God, thank you for the way uh, that you model this radical different kind of way of the kingdom come. And it's certainly not the way that I would probably choose to do things. Oftentimes it's a direct contradiction to what I desire, what my flesh is oriented towards, but you want to break that down. You want to cultivate that earth so that you might grow something better and more beautiful out of that. God, would you do that in us and through us? Would you reveal to us the parts of our lives where we've moved too fast? We've been so self-centered. We've not been about serving. 
where we've been about taking and collecting rather than giving and sacrificing, where we've looked at ourselves as being either inferior or superior to others. And God, would you take all of that and cultivate that into something beautiful and incredible so we might see more of your life be present in us, through us, and around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.